what I'm going to share today, it's not going to be easy for me. It's going to be hard for me, but it's going to be necessary for me. And it's going to be at least R-rated, very graphic. Now I got your attention. Hopefully, it's going to be therapeutic for me, and hopefully it's going to be redemptive for you guys. I'm going to follow my nose pretty close because I don't want to get off on rabbit trails. I'm good at that. All right. Now, what I need to do, what I need to tell you up front is that I'm redeemed, I'm restored, I'm whole, I'm forgiven. I've been bought under the blood of Jesus and under the power of the cross. But I've got to tell you something here up front. This happened in the past, what I'm going to share with you. It was a moral failure on my part when I was coming to this church before David was pastor. This was back when I was Living Faith Church. A moral failure on my part. And uh, it happened sometime. Remember when people started leaving the church, the exodus that we had here? It happened several years after that and before I retired. I've been retired for over two years now. And I was working. And I'm going to tell you exactly my story. It's going to be a testimony and a confession, and it's going to bring glory to God. I like the songs, and I like what was going on about my past is over. I've been given a second chance. All right? Here's my story. I like to be able to tell you that my Christian life has always been one where I've been sailing up in the heavenlies. I'd be lying to you. I hadn't been like that. You know? And the blame lies with me. What I'm going to share, you, share with you has happened in the past. Now, there may be some in here, whatever little confidence you had in me, you may lose that confidence. You know? There may be some of you that will be ashamed of me after you hear what I say. No more ashamed than I was. And there may be some of you that may want to distance yourself from me. You know? I understand. I understand perfectly. Get me? I understand. But I'm at a place in my life now because of what God did in my life where I can tell you it's either the fear of man I'm going to follow or the fear of God I'm going to follow. The fear of man, I'm not going to follow what man thinks or says about me. I'm going to go with what God says about me. Okay. This is going to be an open confession of a past sin, one that I'm extremely ashamed of. It happened some time ago. It's in the past under the blood of Jesus, under the power of the cross, like I said before. And it happened, like I said, after the exodus, some years after that, while I was still working, been retired for a couple years. Now, it's been brought to the light. My wife's aware of it. Pastor David's been made aware of it. And Pastor Eric, I shared with him, he's been made aware. So it's been brought out into the light. Anyway, it happened like this. I was working, and and I worked out at at, uh, where it used to be called Clear Glass, the glass container place where they made bottles and jars and all this here. And I was considered a skilled labor, mold maker, mold, ma- mold maker machinist. And uh, we have to serve a four-year apprentices, and we have to use some very highly skilled technical tools, you know, precision tools. You have to learn how to re- repair stuff on the bench with precision tools, and then you have to learn how to run lathes and mills. It was all high technical. I liked doing that. I, I loved my job. You know, I really did like doing that thing. Well... What happened was that uh, there was 12 of us in my department called the mold shop. And uh, I, I was saved. 
Corona Church in leadership. And what happened was that at that time, particular time, three guys retired all at once like that. So that brought us down to nine. There was another guy who was a good friend of mine. He went home, started cutting his grass, and he had a massive heart attack and died right on the spot. Brought us down again. And then there was another fellow, and I'll talk about him later. This other fellow, he was asked to find employment elsewhere. And the company was very generous with him. They gave him 30 days to find a job before they gave him the boot. You know? I'm saying all that to say this. All of a sudden, our shop was shortened. We tried to put help wanted ads out because we wanted to get qualified mold makers, machinists to come in to pick up the slack. No, no answers at all. No, no reply. We couldn't get any help at all. And we were so short of help, and the workload was over the top. I mean, it was way over the top. And we couldn't put no apprentices on because the, the guys that were left were overwhelmed with work. We hadn't had time to take out of our workload to try to train somebody. You know? So we were in a catch-22 situation. And so the only way we could remedy this was to open up the floodgates of overtime. And open up the floodgates, they did. My regular hours, when we had a full complement of guys, I had a cushy job, good gig. It was from 6 o'clock in the morning to 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Eight hours, Monday through Friday. Good hours, I like that. And on weekends, what I would do, because it was a 24-7 operation out of there, over there where the factory was running constantly, they never shut down, like for Christmas, 24-7, what we would do, because it was a union shop, we were contractually obligated to give them weekend coverage. So I would work Monday through Friday, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, and then on every other weekend, I would work either a Saturday or a Sunday. I would have one weekend off, and I would work either a Saturday or Sunday. That was good. I liked it. That was fine. But we were still getting overtime because even with the full complement of guys, our workload was heavy. But now all of a sudden, we're five guys short. Overtime. I mean, what I would do, I would come in now at either 4 o'clock in the morning or 2 o'clock in the morning every day. And on weekends, it was no more one weekend every other week. It was both days every weekend at least 10 hours a day. I mean, I was wearing myself out. And this didn't just last for six months. This went on for at least five years. I mean, I was tired physically. Mentally, I was spent. Now, get, don't get me wrong. The money was nice. I was making money, but it came at a price. It came at a price. Something had to give. And what gave was my spiritual life. I put it on hold. I was too busy. I was living in the factory. Too busy to worry about my prayer life in the tank. My Bible reading, Bible study, in the tank. Now, I, occasionally I would shoot up a, you know, just a, a prayer every once in a while, just kind of more or less to appease myself. And I would read the Bible. When I read the Bible, it was like, in, like reading the back of the ingredients of a cereal box. Dry. No life in it. I was spiritually stagnated. Ripe for the picking, you know. And this guy that I talked about earlier that was that was asked to leave. Well, he and I hate to judge people, but he was a very carnal, immoral person. He was married. He was a womanizer. And he loved to tell sexually explicit 
raunchy jokes. Well, he knew I was a Christian because I had talked to him a little bit about it, you know, and he knew I was a Christian. And anyway, he would try to come up to me, well, if I got a joke for you. And he would try to clean up a raunchy joke. You know, you can't do that because it's still going to leave an image in your mind. It's impossible to clean up a raunchy joke, you know. Well, anyway, not only was he all what I said before, but he had this 40-ounce thermos that he brought in every day. And he would fill that thermos up with one-third grapefruit juice, two-thirds vodka. At work. Yeah, I'm talking about a quart of vodka in there and the rest of grapefruit juice, you know. And he would drink that whole thing every day. And I knew this guy was heading for trouble because after he would drink that, the men had their own locker room, the women had their own lounge, and there was a, a, a main canteen where men and women could go to have lunch. Well, what he would do, he'd get about half lit. He'd go down to the women's lounge because right out in front of the women's lounge, there were picnic tables. And he'd go out there and he'd start hitting out the women. He would make advances right toward the women, boldly. Some of them, to my astonishment, would actually answer his advances. Others would be so offended, you know. Well, I saw this going on. The company didn't know he was drinking. I knew, because he worked right behind me. So I tried to talk to him, said, and I, and I ain't going to say his name, I said, but I told him, you've got to quit this, man. You're going to get in trouble. You're going to get in trouble. Not every, all them women are taken up on your advancements. You're offending some of them. Hey, I got this thing. I'm cool, you know. He just blew it off. But sure enough, he got in trouble. A couple of the women went up front to the HR, to the plant manager, and they told on him. You know? But he was called up there, and of course, he, he said he was sorry and all this, and they never do it again. One thing the company didn't want, they didn't want sexual harassment charges brought against the company through individuals. That was a bad rap. You didn't want that, you know? So anyway, he cooled it for about a day and a half because he was still drinking. I mean, he'd, he'd get lit. He went back over there, did it again. He kept doing it, and finally the women went back up front. You know, and this time the company called him in, and they gave him an ultimatum. You've got 30 days to find a job, or you're done. You know, well, well, he actually found a job with a competitive company over in Indiana, and he quit. And so that's another guy short. And so our, our, our workload Overwhelming, even more over time. I was living in the place. I was tired, you know. Well, anyway, he was a union officer. And what, because it was a union shop, we had to have a contract every year that had to be renegotiated to, get, to keep our jobs, you know. And that was always, that was just adding stress on top of stress whenever these, because it was always the midnight hour before the contract come through, always. And sometimes it didn't. There was one time we were making signs to go on strike, you know. Thought we were going to lose our job, go on strike, be out in the street. You know, but it didn't happen, thank God, it didn't happen. Well, anyway, he'd been gone. This is about a year and a half later. But overtime still going on and on and on. You know, like I said, at least five years. It might have even been up towards seven years where this was going on. And I was living out there. And my spirituality, done. In a tank, you know. And anyway, I got an email from him, and I thought, because it was, a, contract, it was a, a year that we were negotiating our contract, I thought it was, he had all of our email addresses and all of our address and all of our uh, phone numbers. And I thought it had something to do with the union. Well, I clicked on the email, raunchy, raunchy, sexually explicit joke with an attachment. I read the joke, and I kind of giggled at it, you know? Yeah, uh, you know. And then I clicked on the attachment. 
full-blown women pornography site. Full-blown. And instead of me deleting it real quick, I entertained it for a couple minutes. Then I finally shook myself and I deleted it out of my inbox. Did you hear what I said? I said I deleted it out of my inbox. It went into my delete box. Still on my computer. Well, I was fine, you know, I was fine. I forgot about that. But what I did, well, what I do at least once a year, I would clean up my computer. I would go into my, my emails, start my inbox, and anything that wasn't pertinent, I'd dump it over into the delete box. Same thing with my sin items, dump it over in the delete box. Same thing with my junk files, over the delete box. Then I would go into my delete box, and individually I would delete these one at a time, you know. If they weren't pertinent, I, I deleted them. About three-quarters of the way down after deleting I came to this guy's email again. I opened it up. I clicked on the attachment. And that started a two-year addiction to pornography. Because I was spirit. I had no, I had no strength to fight it. Yeah. Like I said, this isn't, this isn't easy for me to say. And I was, I was at leadership at Living Faith Church. Yeah. And what happened was the painful season of backsliding that I, that I went through. And I thought for sure something like this could never happen to me. I was above something like this happening to me. Now, I wouldn't look at it every day. What I would do, I would maybe click on it. You know, Sandy was always gone. My wife, Sandy, she never knew nothing about this. She was always gone when I would click on it and look at it. You know, I had to have my porn fix at least once a week. Yeah. She was gone all the time when I did this. And how can I say this? Well, what would happen after I did that, when I would put my head on the pillow at night, I hated myself. I was tormented. There was no peace in my heart. I would actually cry out to God. God, help me. Deliver me. Holy Spirit, empower me to beat this thing. I want to be free of this thing. And I meant it. At least I thought I meant it. You know? Well, what would happen was I would be good for about a week, week and a half. All right, good. I, I got this thing, you know. But then something would trigger it. Maybe a movie on TV or something else. Some outside stimulus would trigger it. Sandy would leave. I'd go back into it on the sites again. Yeah. And this went on, like I said, a year and a half for two years. And God, every time I hit the bed, I've got to get free of this, God. This is no good. No good. And I purposely stayed out of the pulpit. I mean, I, I did, and, I, and I dropped all my Bible studies. I didn't, because I knew I was in no shape to minister to anybody. I couldn't minister my, to myself. How could I minister to anybody else? Yeah. So I purposely dropped all that stuff, which... <laughs> even contributed to my spirituallessness, you know. And, well, anyway, speed this up. I'm going to go back 40 years before I was saved. I was my late 20s, early 30s. I worked in the factory in Illinois with guys about my same age. And any of you that know my testimony know where I came from. Those that don't, I'm not going to go through my whole testimony again. But the shop I worked in, there was a lot of guys about my same age and we were all party animals. Everything about me at that time was about myself. Sandy raised my kids. She'd done everything. 
I was out partying. There was times I wouldn't even come home for a day or two. I was an alcoholic. I would drink anywhere between 6 and 18 beers a day. I was a drug addict. There wasn't a drug on the market at that time that I didn't do. All of them. Cocaine, pot, PCP, LSD, muscular, every drug imaginable I did. Even shooting up heroin. And because I was young and I was in the pit of darkness, this is before I'm saved now, folks. I was in the pit of darkness, and it was an all-male youth shop at that time. We had our own locker room, and you could open up anybody's locker, and there'd be the early pictures. I mean, what was porn after drugs and alcohol? I mean, it was just part of the package that the enemy brings. And what we would do on our break, us guys, we would go up to the break room, and some nice-looking girl would come in. Well, we wouldn't say it to her, but, boy, we'd sit around the table and tell us, Everybody was, you know, oh, what I like to do, and what I like to do. Oh, boy, you know, I mean, just got filthy, just filthy. There was no end to this pit that I was in back then. Well, lo and behold, in my hometown of Streeter, Illinois, a revival was happening. There was, remember the charismatic renewal? Anybody familiar with the charismatic? The Spirit of God was hitting my town of 12 and 13,000 in a powerful way. And there was this one couple, he was a, he had a, Century 21 real estate firm. He was the owner of it. And he had a big house. He was Catholic at the time. He had a big house with a living room, probably about a third of this sanctuary. Big house. And he, after him and his wife got saved, they left the Catholic church, and they opened their house up on Tuesdays and Thursdays for Bible study and prayer. And then because they had no church, they'd open it up on Sunday. Well, I had heard about this. You know, in a town of 12, 13,000 you hear everything, what's going on in town. So I was kind of curious, what the heck is this Jesus thing going, you know, that's going on over there? I knew I was in no shape, you know. I knew that I had a banana peel slipping on my way to hell, you know. Anyway, I said, I'm going to go check this thing out. Well, I went. I was 34 years old, January the 18th, 1983, 8.30 at night. I know. Well, anyway... That was the first time in my life that I heard the gospel. The very first time in my life. And when I heard it, I knew it was real. And I asked, the man prayed with me, and I asked Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior. And I had a tremendous spiritual experience. I'm going to use a big, deep theological term as to what I felt leave me. I felt this yuck just leave me. This, this darkness, this gloom, this heaviness, this, it just went. And I took like a breath. And I didn't know what it was at that time, but it was the Spirit of God coming into me. And I felt the heavens open up, and I'm telling you, I felt like God was just taking a bucket of love and just pouring it down on me. But above all of that, what I felt, and this, the only word I can find is I felt clean. Clean, clean. All this stuff was gone. I felt pure. Clean. You know? I knew without any... I had no word in me, but I knew without any doubt that I was not the same man that I was five minutes ago. I had been changed. God loved me. God was for me. It was wonderful. I stayed at that guy's house till 2.30 in the morning talking to him. Finally, he says, would it be all right if my wife and I go to bed? 
you know. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, go ahead. So anyway, I left. But I didn't want to fall asleep that night because I was afraid if I fall asleep, I'd wake up in the morning and this thing would be gone. But I did fall asleep. And I woke up the next morning, and it wasn't gone. I was on fire for the Lord. So I went straight to work that next morning, and I'm telling all of my heathen friends, I got saved. Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. I had no problem distancing myself from them. They distanced themselves from me. They thought I was crazy, you know. But you know what? This was in 1983. I grew. I was so hungry for a while, I just stayed in the Word, and I grew, and I grew, and I grew. But in March of 92, the company come out, and they posted on our bulletin board. They're going to shut the doors in 90 days. I was going to be out of a job. You know? But during, from, 92 to, from 83 to 92, four of those guys ended up, because of my witness and my testimony, you know, and because of God's goodness, got saved. Started coming to the same church as me. And a couple of them are still going to the same church back in Illinois. You know? So God was working. And anyway, here it is. March of 92, 90 days they're going to close the door. I didn't really want to leave. I put my, I mean, I sent my resume out on the very first day that I saw that I'm, I'm looking for. I never got any replies. Not one reply. There was no jobs around. It was, our, our city, and as a matter of fact, Illinois, Northern Illinois, was economically depressed. There was no jobs out there. Now, I'd been laid off in the past for a year, and I went to be a security guard at a nuclear plant. I thought, well, maybe I could get that. But once you quit a security guard job at a nuclear plant, it's hard to get back in. They just don't let you back in. So I knew that job was out too. So anyway, it's probably about a month into these 90 days, the production manager comes out to me and he gives me a sheet of paper. I said, here, Ralph. I said, what's that? He said, don't tell anybody I got, gave you that because I can get in trouble. I said, well, what is it? And he said, it's a list of our company and other companies who's looking for qualified mold makers. And I said, wow. I said, well, I thank you. I appreciate that, you know. And there was like, there's one in, out in, uh, Washington on the West Coast, another job in uh, Louisiana, another job, I'm trying to think of where they were all at, uh, New York, Minnesota, South Carolina, and there was one in Wilson, North Carolina, too. My eyes kept going at this one in Wilson, North Carolina. You know? So anyway, I told the production manager, I said, it would be all right if I ain't gonna go in the office and call the, the manager of the Wilson shop? He said, yeah, sure, so I did. I set up a, an interview with him. That was in June. We came out here, Sandy and I came in here. Great interview. I didn't want to really leave because I was, I was attached to my church, and my family. Of course, my kids were both grown, grown. One was 19, one was 23, but I didn't really want to leave. But I couldn't find no work. God, I said, well, if this is your will, you're going to have to open up some doors. Well, I had the guy offered me the job. He said, we'll hold the job for you. I said, well, I'm going to go back home. I didn't say I was going to pray about it because I didn't know if he knew what prayer was. I said, yeah, what I'll do, I'll go back home, decide, and I'll call you back and make my decision. And you got to understand. I said, okay, I said, I'll make my decision. I went back home and Sandy and I decided, yes, we're going to leave. We're going to go. We're going to take the job. Start out new. You know, a thousand miles away. So that's exactly what I did. You know, I called him back up and said, I'll take the job. And I said, when would you like me to start? He said, I'd like you to start sometime in July. This is June. I haven't even put my house on the market. And the, and the whole city, the northern Illinois, is economically depressed. There were houses on the market for six, seven years, never sold. And I didn't put my house on the market. 
said, well, God, if you want me to go, you're going to have to do something about this. So I put my, heart, my house on the market. Ten days later, the real estate agent comes and says, I've got a buyer for your house. Oh, <laughs> I got to go, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we get this big rider truck, pack it all up, pull my car behind me in the car, definitely. Looked like the Clampets were coming out to, Cal I mean, out to <laughs> Carolina. And I start out there, and I'm, and I'm working out there, and, and when, when I came out here, I first prayed. I said, Lord, I said, I want favor with my manager, my supervisor, and I want you to direct my steps to the church that I should go. And I want favor with the pastors, with the leadership in that church. Yeah. So here we come. And I, I, I came out a week before I was supposed to start. I was supposed to start on the 27th. That was the Monday. It came out the, the previous Monday. And what I would do, all I had was a car and a motorcycle at that time. And we lived in a little duplex right off Airport Road. And what I would do, I would, during that week before I started, being nice warm weather in July, I'd hop on my motorcycle and I'd take a map of Wilson and I'd put it in my helmet and I'd ride around trying to get familiar, familiar with the roads and the streets, you know, everything. And, and I also made a list. I got in the yellow pages and I made a list of about six or eight churches that I said uh, I was going to help God out and help me find a church, you know. God needed some help, so I'm going to help him out. So I make this list and I said, told Sandy, what we'll do, we'll, we'll, we'll go to each church one week at a time and then our, the best one that's our fit will go to that church. Helping God. So anyway, I hop on my motorcycle. This is probably about a Wednesday before I'm going to start the following week. I'm riding around. I come down toys now. I'm trying to find a back way or an alternative road out to the factory. This church was probably right in about the middle, halfway. This church wasn't even on the list. I come riding by the church, and I saw the marquee sign out there, Living Faith Church, full gospel. Hmm, that's interesting, you know. So I went back and I told Sandy, I said, you know what, I just saw a church that is a full gospel church. Why don't we try that Sunday? Yeah, okay, so we came that first Sunday. And we were greeted by people and people, friendly people, that came in here to praise and worship. You and your husband were leading praise and worship at that time. We were involved in praise and worship. David would open up the service. Pastor preached that day. You could feel the presence of the Lord in this place, the Spirit of God in this place. Pastor preached, and he was a preacher teacher. And the teaching aspect... I love that, man. I picked up right up on that. Yeah. I liked being taught, you know, learning. And uh, so we, we left after service. And on the way home, I said, what do you think, hon? I like it. So as soon as I got home, I went over to the kitchen table, grabbed that piece of paper, crumbled it up, threw it away. We found our church. And that was in June or July of 92, and I've been here ever since. Yeah. God is so good, you know. And what happened, after about a year and a half, because I lived halfway, after I got off work, I would stop, and I would talk with Pastor David and Pastor Eric. I wanted to get to know these guys. And I wanted them to get to know me. And so, I mean, I would sit there and bug them for an hour or two at a time after work sometimes, you know. But there was a bonding going. There was something happening. After about a year and a half, after one service, Pastor Eric was walking in the back, and I happened to say, Pastor, have a minute with you. And he said, yeah, what's up, bro? He said, the church was growing at that time, and it was growing, you know. I said, would it be okay if I started a Bible study in my house? And knowing pastor, he said, let me pray about it. You know, he wouldn't say, yes or no, right? Then he said, let me pray. He wanted to be certain. I said, fine. He said, stop back in a couple of days, and I have an answer. And so a couple of days later, I'm coming from work. I stop here, and him and David are both here at the time. 
So I go in, and they're both sitting in the same room. And I'm like, come on in, Ralph. Yeah, come on in. We want to talk to you. So, okay, I said, uh, what do you think about that Bible study? Go for it. We think it's a good thing. It's in the will of God. So now we want to ask you a question. Uh-oh. What? Said, Would you consider becoming a member of the leadership team, either a deacon or an elder? And so I give him the same answer that Pastor gave me. Well, I'm going to pray about it, you know, because I didn't know what it all entailed. So anyway, I did. I, a couple of days later, I come back and said, yes, I'll join the leadership team, you know. And because Pastor was so busy and the church was going so fast that I drew closer to David the more, more than they did to Pastor, but I still was close to Pastor. But anyway, David and I became prayer partners, accountability partners. And if you don't have a prayer partner, your prayer partner, if you're married, should be your spouse. But if you don't have one, find one of your own sex. If, if you're a male, find a male prayer partner. If, you, if you're a female, find a female, female prayer partner, accountability partner. I said, right now, in the days that we're living in, we're going to hold ourselves accountable to others, and they're going to have to be. When you, when you were talking about uh, bear one another's burdens, bingo, you know. David was my prayer partner. I had a hard time keeping him straight, but I worked on it, you know. <laughs> I mean, it was the other way around, really, you know. And, uh, but we were tight. We were tight. We had a bond there, you know. It was, it was all good. Well, okay, now fast forward back to where I'm in this muck. I'm in this mire. Even though, like you said up there earlier, you've you got to pull you out of the muck and the mire. Man, I was about that deep in it, yeah. Anyway... At this time, David and Cecile had moved to Florida with their family. So all of a sudden, here I am, addicted to porn. Now, David and Cecile had already moved away before this happened. You know, they were gone. I had no prayer partner. Now, it's too ashamed to get one. I didn't want nobody to know what I was doing. I, wouldn't t I didn't confide in my wife. I wouldn't tell nobody what I was doing. Too ashamed, too embarrassed, too guilty. You know? And I knew better, but I wouldn't do it. Yeah? Enemy's not very good, very nice. I figured, you know, well, you know, I can just ride this thing out. I can handle it myself. After all, you know, I'm a leader. I, I can take care of this thing. Wrong. Every night after I'd look at it, I'd go to bed. Same thing, cry out to God. Finally, you know, the flame that I had when I was on fire for God had dwindled down to just a little, little, little. I, I would even say there wasn't even a little flame there. I would say it was just like a burning ember. That's all I had left in me. But yet, the goodness of God, I could still hear a voice, his voice. And he said, this has to be brought out into the light. I wasn't willing to bring it out. I don't want to tell nobody, you know, too embarrassed. You know? But he kept saying, every time I'd cry out to him, forgive me, God, restore me, work a miracle in me. You know, Holy Spirit, empower me. This has to be brought out into the light. I'm going to show you how when I couldn't do it, what God did for me. All right. I was very, very thorough and sneaky. After I would look at these sites, I would go into my history, and I would delete them off my computer because Sandy and I shared the same computer. I wanted to make sure she didn't find out. What happened was, though, about this time, Sandy decides to get a smartphone. And, oh, Ooh, smartphone. I'm, I was glad my flip phone, man. I, I, I just figured out how to send. You know, you, when, you t when you text on a, on a flip phone, it took you 10 minutes to send out one sentence, you know. Ding, 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 all that, yeah. 
Well, I'd figured that out, and I'd master it, and I didn't want no more challenges anyway. I was doing all this overtime. I was wore out, beaten, everything else, you know, and I didn't want no smartphone. So I kept my, she had her smartphone well, a couple years before I got mine. Well, anyway, we'd done all of our banking, all of our business, all of our, everything we did was online. It was convenient, you know. So Sandy mentioned to me about mm, several months later, said, why don't we sync the phone to the computer? Yeah. Uh oh you know. I said, I'm going to have to really be careful now if we're going to do this, you know. And so anyway, we synced it. Because a lot of times we'd go to Illinois to visit friends and relatives, and if there was some business we had to take care of, well, you could just get on the phone and take care of it. Well, then wait until we either take care of it before or wait until after we got back. So anyway, that's what he did. And there were some of these sites that I would visit didn't have a, a really uh, a pornographic name to them. They were slick, you know. They had different names. Well, I missed one. I missed one. I'm, and when I was deleting all my history, you know, I missed one. And I was in another room, and Sandy was in the living room on her phone. She said, Butch. That's my nickname. Butch, come on in here a minute. I got a question for you. Oh, yeah, okay, honey, sure. What's up, honey? She said, are you looking at porn on a computer? I'm going to tell you something. It was like somebody took a ball bat. Boom! Right in my gut. I wanted to lie so bad and say, oh, it's a computer glitch or it's this, that, and the other. But I couldn't. But every negative emotion rushed over me. Everyone. Fear. Doubt. Shame. I mean, I was just flooded with all these negative emotions. But I knew I had to tell the truth. And there was also a sense of relief because this was finally out into the light. Finally. You know? So I said, yes, honey. I have. Forgive me. And that was the first day, the first step of my deliverance. I finally, when I would go to bed at night... You know, and pray. Now, don't, the temptations were still there. Don't get me wrong. They were still there. But now I could use the word all of a sudden was fresh in me again. I could use the word. And the first word, whenever I would be tempted, uh, the first thing I would say, for the weapons of my warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. This thing had become a stronghold. To the pulling down of strongholds, casting down all imaginations, all thoughts, all arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity. And now I was using the word against this thing. And I was getting free. And it was wonderful. You know? yeah. Finally, oh, finally. That was the starting point. You know? But I had this war that I had to fight all the time. You know? And I'm glad I can stand up here and unashamedly say, I'm free of it. It's gone. It's in the past, under the blood of Christ. You know, but I had to fist that up. I had to tell you about that. You know, if you, just, if you think you can't fall, think again. Think again, folks. But this happened. When this happened to me, you know, <clears throat> before this happened to me, I, w I was appalled at watching some of these major TV ministers fall into all these sins. And I was, you know, I looked down my sanctified, self-righteous nose. Said, what's the matter with these guys? You know, what's wrong with them? You know, don't they know who they are? You know. What's wrong with them? What ha where's their relationship with God? Well, here I became one of them. You know? So that no judgment went out the window, too. And, and the one scripture, before Sandy found this out, 
God was speaking to me. He, he was throwing these, these scriptures up in, in me when I would lay in bed at night. He would throw, like, Numbers 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. Luke 12, 2. There's nothing covered that shall not, there's nothing coming that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. You know, and then Ephesians 5, 3. But all things that are exposed are made manifest to the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. In other words, if the light shines on your sin, it will reveal it and you can get help. You can beat this thing, you know. And I was, I was getting these scriptures, but I, was, I wouldn't do nothing until finally that day when Sandy asked me about that. And I fessed up, you know. And that night I went to bed and I said, God, I have sinned against you. You first. Forgive me. God, I have sinned against myself. Because I hated myself. No peace in my... I have sinned against myself. And I had to forgive myself. I don't know if you can understand it, but you've got to forgive yourself. You can't stay in that state of being ashamed and fearful. The enemy will play with you if you stay in it. You had to forgive yourself. And I, and I also said, God, I've sinned against my wife. For your word says... You mentioned it earlier. The Beatitude, your word says... You have heard it say you shall not commit adultery. But I say, if you look at a woman with lust, you have committed adultery. Well, what do you think was going through my mind when I was on them porn sites? You know, I said, God, I have a sin against my wife. I have broken the marriage covenant. Forgive me and restore me. And he did. He did. I'm a redeemed man today. All right, now I've got some statistics that I want to share with you. This thing has infiltrated the church in a big way. After I got free, I started looking at this. You know? Anybody here of the Barna Group? What they are, they're an evangelical Christian think tank, and what they do, they take polls. They do a lot of interviewing across the broad spectrum of Christendom, and they take all these interviews about different topics, and they have six steps here. There's six remarks of what they found out about pornography in the Christian world and leadership. Listen to this. I'm just going to mention these six and then I'm going to get into my lesson. What time is it? Oh, we got time. This is about leadership. Number one, very first thing. Let me get it where I can see it. I speak. Many pastors, number one, many pastors and Christian leaders 57%, that's almost 6 out of 12 pastors and Christian leaders, and youth pastors, 64%, admit they have struggled with porn, either currently or in the past overall. That's startling. So startling, I was one of them. Number two, 21% of youth pastors and 14% of pastors admit that they currently struggle with using porn. Two out of every ten of, of youth pastors and 5% of pastors struggle right now. Number three, about 12% of youth pastors and 5% of pastors say that they are addicted to porn. They admit that they can't get free. What a lie. They've embraced a lie. You can get free. I'm standing up there telling you as a living example, you can get free. But these people have said they can't. They're addicted to it. You know? And these are Christian leaders. 12% of pastors, 5% of youth, or 12% of youth pastors, 5% of pastors. Number four, 80, now this is the one that blew my mind, and I'll tell you why. 
50% of pastors who use porn feel a great sense of shame. 87% of pastors who use porn feel a great sense of shame. What about the other 13%? They don't feel any shame at all in doing it. Christian leaders. Wow, you know? Wow. And you know, in this poll that's taken, there's a couple more I'll talk about. There's a poll that was taken. Are those that would actually admit that they were involved in porn? How many wouldn't, you know, when they were, if somebody would have called me up and say, oh, you're a Christian leader, are you involved in porn? Oh, no, 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 not me. Uh-uh, no, no, you, that's the guy down the street, you know. I lie right through my teeth. You know, but these are the ones that actually admit. So you've got to give them some credit. All right, number, number five. 55% of pastors who use porn say they live in constant fear of being discovered. They're unable or not willing to bring it to the light. And it's, that's all they have to do. They, they choose to walk in deception. Yeah, they choose. And the last one. The vast majority of faith leaders who struggle with porn say that this has significantly affected their ministry in a negative manner. It's not clear why, but youth pastors are twice as likely as pastors to report this kind of unfavorable impact. Them are some startling statistics. That, that's a church room. That's Christendom. Would you say we need some help? Yeah. Now, here's, what, here's, here's how deceptive. I was actually taken on the nature of the, of the enemy when I was involved in this stuff because I told you I didn't want to get in the pulpit or I didn't want to leave Bible study. But anyway, Pastor Eric, at that time, because the church was dwelling, he would go to conferences or he would go to speaking engagements you know, and being on the leadership team, I knew inevitably that he was going to ask me to speak. So being clever, what I did, if I was off that Sunday, I would, I would look at his schedule. If I was off that Sunday, I would trade with somebody who was working Saturday. I'd work his Saturday, I mean, I'd work his Sunday, and he would work my Saturday. You got that? I purposely did that. So I could have an excuse in case pastor asked me, oh, I can't, sorry, I'm working. I'd always come up with some other excuse if, if, if he caught me off guard. All legitimate excuses, all legitimate lies. Can you see what it does? How it takes you down like that? All right. Now, that's my opening. Now I'm going to get into my teaching. All right, could you put that, uh... oh, you got it. Wow, that's quick. Okay. What I'm going to talk about, this what the enemy did to me. He stripped me of every one of these pieces of armor of God. Stripped me naked of the armor of God. And I allowed it. Not anymore. See, we're living in a time right now that we, I mean, you, you, can, you can tell, just look at society. You can tell that the gates of hell have been opened up, and it seems like lawlessness is just prevailing. If we're not prepared as a body of Christ, we can become a casualty. I don't want to see that. I don't want that to happen, especially in this church. You know, I'm not. I mean, I'm talking about everybody, but right here, you know, because I'm part of this church. I don't want to see that. Now, we may forget a time. I'm going to stick close to my notes here. We may forget a time, but one thing I know because I've experienced it that this world is a battlefield. We're in a battle. We're in a war, you know. Day by day, hour by hour, I don't care how you say it, we face a spiritual war with an enemy who is real. Even though we can't see him, he's real. He's real. And 
he wants nothing more than to bring us into a place of being vulnerable, a place of vulnerability, you know. His main reason is what? To kill, steal, and destroy. And that could be spiritually, mentally, physically, economically, relationally. I don't care how. He wants to put us down. He doesn't want us to be any kind of a threat to his kingdom of darkness. Yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you something. The, force of a dark, the forces of the darkness, they don't wait until we're, we're ready for the attack, that we're prepared until we're all dressed up. And are. They don't wait. No, as a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. Now, their purpose is to do everything to make sure we're not ready for the attack so we can become a victim. You know? They're ruthless, they're determined, and they're cunning. Remember in Genesis 3, it says that the serpent was more subtle than any other beast? Cunning, subtle, scheming. Planning, deceptive, that's the nature of the, of the beast. And if we don't have armor on, folks, we're going to get caught. I thought I was above it. No, mm -mm. Mm -mm. no, sir. And the main purpose is to get us to a place of com complacency, compromise, and weakness, make us ineffective as Christians, make us completely ineffective. Now, there's two words that I come to love in the Bible. These two words are, but God. Because right before that, it's kind of a negative connotation, you know, not what we were, what the enemy likes to do. And then there's these two words that follow, but God. And then comes the truth. And I can say this, but God has given us his spirit and his word. And they're both true and they're both powerful, you know. Why has he given us? So we can have the wisdom to protect ourselves against the enemy's schemes when he attacks us. All right. Now, let's, I'm going to read this. You, you can, can, you, can you guys see that, or do you have to come up front? Or you can turn to Ephesians 6 and follow along with me in the Bible if you want to. It would be easier than if you can't read it up there, because I'm going to, I'm going to go through this. And, and this is going to be related to my perspective, because I've been through this. You know, like I said, this happened several years ago, but I'm bringing it out to the light. You know. Both pastors know it. My wife knows it, you know. Okay, now, follow along with me as I read. I'm going to read it. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Well, that's a nice admonition, Paul. And I would really like to be able to do that. I want to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. But how do I do that? How do I become Strong in the Lord and operate in the power of his might, his mighty power. How do I do that? Well, look at the next verse. He'll tell you exactly how to do it. You want to be strong in the Lord and walk in the power of his might? Look at the next word. He says this. Put on the whole armor of who? Whose armor is it? It's not our armor. It's his armor. Why do we put it on? Keep reading that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the schemes, the plans, the ploys, the plots of the devil. You know? For he says, we do not wrestle. Another translation says war. We do not war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Now, I'm not going to get into all, exactly all what those four categories are, but they're all minions of Satan. And they're here, they're hell-bent for our destruction. Huh? Make us ineffective. 
Okay, then it says after that, it says, therefore, what's the next two words? Take up. Therefore, take up. God provides the armor. We have to dress ourselves up with it. We have to put it on. That's our responsibility. It's there, but we have to put it on. We don't put it on. We're a soldier undressed for battle. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand, withstand an evil day. What's the evil day? It's not just one day. The evil day is whenever he's t- tormenting you, tempting you, trying to get you to not walk in the reality of who you are in Christ. That's the evil day. And that could be every day. Every day. And then he says, and having done all. What does he mean, having done all? That means to have all this armor put on you. After you equipped yourself with all this armor, then he says, stand. That's when you can stand. After you place the armor on. You won't be able to stand without it. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the blessed plate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith of which you have been able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful, to this end with all perseverance. You know what the word perseverance means? I looked it up. It means we have to be watchful. We have to be persistent, unwavering, steadfast, and fervent. That's what it means to stand, too. Just take a stance. I'm going to stay in this. I'm going to stand in this. I'm going to war against this thing, you know. I remember, you might think this is silly, but when I first got saved, I remember the first time I heard a teaching on the armor of God. And it, it so struck me that, I mean, I, I lived in Poly about a mile away from the factory, and, and I, I would walk occasional, occasionally. But before I left the house, I would actually, with the armor of God, what I would do, I would actually vis- visualize myself putting each piece on and telling myself what each piece meant to me. Yeah? Because when I went to the factory, when I went to that shop, that was not exactly the most sanctified shop in the world. You know? It was a war zone. Yeah? So I knew I had to be dressed in the armor of God. And I would do that every day. Every day. I'm doing it again. Why? Because I need to. And I would say, be a good idea if you guys did it too. Yeah? Good idea. All right, let's look at these pieces one at a time. I'm going to break this down again from my perspective. All right? The very first one is stand therefore having girded your waist the belt of truth. Look at the picture up there. The first piece of our armor is truth. And for me, that's pretty easy to understand now. Since Satan is the father of lies. He's a deceiver. Deception is high on the list of things that are abomination to God. He hates lies. He hates deception. Proverbs, what is it, 616? God hates a lying tongue. It's an abomination to him. Satan is the father of lies. This is the first piece of armor that we're told to put on. Truth. The truth of God's word. Why? Because it's for our sanctification and for our deliverance. Let me explain something here. If you remember, in John chapter 17, this was Jesus' high priestly prayer. Right before he was going to go to the cross. Right before he was going to be crucified. He was praying to his fathers concerning his disciples and all of those who would come after his disciples. 
he was praying. He's, and he said, Father, sanctify them through your word. Your word is truth. But right before that, he says, I pray that you don't take them out of the world, Father, but I pray that you keep them from the evil one. That's what I say. Sanctification and deliverance can be found in the truth of God's word. We need both of them. We need both of them, but they can only come through the truth of God's words. And let me just say this here, concerning this here. Our deliverance and our sanctification is just not only for our own benefit, but it's for the people that benefit for the people that we come in contact with. Second Corinthians chapter two. You don't have to turn there. Verse three says, Paul wrote to the, the Corinthians, and he said, "You know, you guys are living epistles." You know what he meant by that? Every one of you guys, even me, we're being read by people everywhere we go, and we read people too. What am I dealing with? What am I dealing with? Well, you, you know, just you, you read them; they read you too. You know, we're, we're living epistles. So what that tells me, all the time, this is going on where we're being read. That tells me that what truth means here has to deal with, from my perspective, godly integrity. Godly integrity here. Look at this. Look it up there. That picture again. A soldier in that day had this girdle of truth, and what it did, it actually secured his breastplate. And it actually had leather straps going down. Can you see it up there? Leather straps going down that protected his loins. And also what it did, that belt secured or held his arm, I mean his uh, weaponry. He had a dagger or a sword that could clip right on his belt. You know. That tells me this here. It's living in the truth and having the integrity of God in our lives that holds everything else together. You lose the integrity of God. You lose the truth. You know, you're set up. Set up for a fall. You know. If the enemy can get you to cooperating in truth, you're playing on his terms. And he don't play fair. All right. Paul tells us to stand before this. There's a stand therefore. And standing means you take a stance and you discipline yourself. The church... I won't say all churches, but in general, discipline, you don't even hardly hear the word in church anymore. We are an undisciplined society, and the church is very close to being an undisciplined church. That ain't going to get it, folks. Next piece, the breastplate of righteousness up there. Look at the picture again. The breastplate shielded a, a, a soldier's heart, his vital organs, his lungs, and his heart, you know. I mean, if, 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 uh, if you didn't have the breastplate, it, the blow could be fatal, right to the heart, you know. And notice it's called righteousness. And it's not talking about our works of righteousness or our good works. You know what it's talking about. It's talking about the righteousness of Christ, his righteousness, you know. It's, it's how he sees us now, how God the Father sees us approved, you know, and acceptable to God. We are right standing with God right now. That righteousness of Christ, the same way he sees his son, God the Father sees his son, he sees us. And it's imputed to us, that right standing that we have, by faith. It's imputed to us by faith. Now, what this tells me here, that has to do with the believer, believer's purity. Let me explain what I mean. For the Christian the breastplate of righteousness is simply this. It's his righteousness, 
his perfection, his holiness that is imputed to us, not ours, his. And what it does, it protects our hearts, knowing who we are in Christ, knowing what he did for us. It protects us in our hearts. Now, understand something. Satan knows the scriptures, too. He does. Because yeah. he hears it every Sunday. He hears the scriptures from the pulpit. You know, and he, he knows the scriptures. And he knows this one verse particularly well. It's, it's found in you. Don't turn there. With 23, Proverbs 23, 7. For as a man thinketh, what? Finish it. In his heart, what? So he is. As a man thinketh, Satan wants to get to your heart. If he can get to your heart and change your thinking, he's got you. He wants to get you. That's why this, this piece of armor right here is so valuable. It guards our heart from him. It protects us from his schemes, his devices. Yeah. He knows the scripture. And what he wants to do, he would not only the, if he can't strip this piece off of you, this piece of armor, he wants you just to get it to where it's fitting kind of loosely, where there's little openings maybe on the side or in the front or someplace, you know. And what does he prize and he pokes? Prize and he pokes until he can find an opening to get to your heart. That's why this piece of armor here, the righteousness of God, has to be securely fastened on us. We've got to know who we are in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, and that we have a right standing with us. Our Heavenly Father. All right. And what it does, once we know that, that will empower us to lead, lead, lead clean lives, pure lives. I was stripped of all these pieces. And this one really particularly hurt me here. Yeah. I, couldn't, I wasn't leading a clean life. I am now. wasn't then. Next piece. I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. The next piece is Stay up there. After the blessed of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The next piece is the shoes of the gospel which brings peace. All right. Now to me, peace, another word for peace is tranquility. I told you when I would go to bed that and, and after looking at that stuff, I was tormented. Had no peace. No tranquility at all. Nothing, you know. A Roman soldier, if you look at it, well, you can't see it on here, but a Roman soldier, not only did he have his shin guards, as you can see up there, but his feet, his shoes, had hobnails. Now, anybody know what hobnail is? Anybody know what, uh, ever seen a football shoe, the cleats on the bottom of a football shoe? Well, that's what they were. That's what they were, hobnails. And they, them cleats were there so the Roman soldier would have sure footing. I mean, as the initial attack, uh, attack came to him, he could could uh, honker down and stop the initial attack. But after initial attack, what he could do with those hobnails, with those cleats, he could move forward into the enemy's territory. Did you hear that? That's what the gospel does. It equips us with shoes so that we can have peace in our heart to where we can actually withstand and resist the temptations of the devil, and then after that, move forward into his territory. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take the gospel out, aren't we, folks? At least that's what I thought we were supposed to do. Take the gospel out. And notice what it says, it says here, that the preparation of the gospel of peace. I look at that word preparation there. You know, that, that's telling me that we can't wait till we're in a war. We've got to be prepared before the enemy attacks. 
We have to have the gospel solidified in our hearts so that we can go out with it. We have to be prepared with the message of the gospel. And you'll have peace if you are. You'll have peace. It's essential in winning souls, man. If we're going to advance, that's the whole thing. The whole thing about the kingdom of God, the, the gospel message, the kingdom of God, the gospel of God, the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of the kingdom, they're all, you know, same thing. We have to have that securely in us, in our hearts. So this way, when we go out, we can destroy the works of the devil. We can take territory from him. Are you with me there? Uh, that's the purpose of the, of the gospel. Folks, God is with us. He's not against us. All right, the next piece. I'm almost done here. I'm getting close. The shield of faith. That one I like. You look up there, the shield of faith. What that means to me, that shield of faith has to do with assurance, certainty, confidence, all those words. You know, you got to know who you are in Christ. You know? If you look up there, the Romans, that, that shield was possibly maybe about two feet by four feet. You know? And what he would do, it was made of wood and it was covered with leather. And if there was any water around, he would splash water on that shield. Splash water. Why did he put the water on there? Because the enemy would have this, these arrows. They would have rags around the end of the arrows. They'd dip it in oil and they would shoot the flaming arrows at the Roman soldier. The Roman soldier would use the shield to block it. Now, if he didn't have that shield, the arrow might not necessarily have hit him, but if it came close enough, it could burn him, it could cause pain in his life, and it could make him incapacitated to be a soldier. I don't know if you're hearing what I'm saying there. Pain in your life. He could get burnt by the enemy's flaming arrows. Those arrows that are deceptive, that tell you, God's not really for you, you know? Who do you think you are? You're not really who you think you are in Christ, you know? He, the enemy is relentless, is trying to make the word of God ineffective in our lives. But that's what the shield of faith does. It stops all those flaming arrows, every single one of them, no? Matter of fact, we're not in this alone because Hebrews chapter, chapter I, I believe it is 12, says that Jesus is the author and what? The finisher of our faith. He is the originator of our faith, and he helps complete our faith. He's working with us to build us up in the faith, you know. All right? We're not in this thing alone, and that's good. And with him, does it say, if, if, you, if you look at that, it says, and the shield of faith, which is able to quench about 75% of the darts of the wicked one, is that what it says? Every one of them. Victory is assured if, we're, if, we, if our shield of faith is secure. Every dart that the enemy can throw. Every single one of them. And I like that. We can't allow the enemy to put subtle doubts in our mind. We just can't do that. You know, we, have to, we have to be secure with the shield on. And I'm going to just say this about the shield of faith too. How do we get faith? We have to get into the word. We have to feed ourselves with the word. Now here's the thing. If we're not taking time out to feed ourselves with the word of God... If we're not feeding the word of God into us, then we are not starving the doubts. You can't do both at the same time. You can't feed yourself and starve at the same time. If you're feeding yourself with the word of God, you're starving the doubts. But if you're feeding yourself with doubts, you're starving the word of God. It's our call. 
It takes discipline. All right, the next one, helmet of salvation. This has to do with the believer's mindset. Are you going to think I'm a little wacky with this one, but I'm going to tell you what's true. I want you to listen up. This has to do with the believer's mindset. The helmet was always used to protect the mind, the brain, our thinking, keeping safe and secure what we thought, what our thoughts are, you know, our mindset. When a person is saved, now hear me, when a person is first saved for the first time in his life, he starts thinking right. Is that not true? First time in your life. You're starting to become sane with God's sanity. For the first time in your life, after you receive Christ, you have the opportunity to put on the mind of Christ. That's called sanity. Those who are not saved, who have not, who have not the advantage of putting on the mind of Christ, you know what? I'm going to tell you something. They're walking in insanity. You might not think so, but they are. They don't have the mind of Christ. They reject the mind of Christ. What's the most insane thing a person can do? Reject Christ. Reject the mind of Christ. We have, look at our secular society, our universities, our colleges. These are brilliant kids that are coming out of there, but they're insane. You know, I, I can't say it any nicer than that. Yeah. Why? Because they don't have the mind of Christ. Tough word. Tough word. The unsafe person has no hope of warding off the blows of false doctrine. No hope. Because he is without the helmet of salvation and his mind is incapable of discerning between spiritual truth and spiritual deception. And that's the truth. His mind is, is like in a fog of darkness. Professing themselves to be wise, they became as fools. Yeah? That's why we need this helmet of salvation, so we don't get tripped up in this. The next one. Truth and sanity can only come through the Word of God. That's when we finally start thinking right, once we get saved, once we get into the Word of God. Our, our stinking thinking finally becomes corrected. Yeah. All right, now, the next one, the sword of the Spirit. This one here pretty much interprets itself. The sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. The Word of God. Well, all the other pieces, if you notice, they're defensive in their nature. This piece here is offensive. After we initially stopped the attack of the devil, now we can pull out our sword, the word of God, and go after him. Take his territory. Use it as a tool of dominion. Take what is God's. You know, go in there. Have victory. You know? And to me, this speaks of, because of what I went through, it speaks of the holiness and the power of the word of God. And it, there's not a greater weapon that is conceivable for the believer to have. A greater spiritual weapon is not conceivable than the, than the word of God. And if you notice this word, it says the word of God there. And I don't want to get technical here, but there's two, two different Greek words in, in the scriptures. One, logos, which means the word of God. The other one's rhema, the word of God. Logos is a general revelation. Jesus was the logos of God. He came to reveal who God was. The scriptures are the logos of God. The general broad revelation of who God is. 
Now, the difference between that word, logos, and the word rhema is rhema is when you can take that general re re revelation of God and the Spirit of God can pull out of that, and you can hear the Spirit of God speak to you and make that Word of God come alive. And when the Spirit of God makes that Word of God come alive, the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God, that's when you can use it as a weapon against the enemy. Remember when Jesus, in 40 days when he was tempted in the wilderness? What did he use against temptation? What did he say? It is written. It is written. It is written. You know, three times. And I like particularly over in Matthew 4, 4, where when Satan come up to him, he said, if you're the son of God, because Jesus was hungry, 40-day fast. You get pretty hungry after the 40-day fast. If you're the son of God, tell them stones to turn into bread. Right? Is that what he said to him? What did Jesus say? He said, yeah, that's right. It is written, man shall not live. Now listen. By bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Not proceeded, not past tense. Present tense. Proceeds from the word. That's a rainbow word. That's the sword of the spirit. And right after Jesus said that, Satan skedaddled. He left. That's what the word of God is. That's the sword of the spirit. When the spirit of God speaks to you, and that can only come through fellowship and relationship with the Lord, spending time with the Lord. That's when the word of God comes alive. That's when the spirit of God will speak to you if you're being tormented or you're under attack or something, and you can speak the right word to the enemy's camp. Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. The sword of the spirit is a great offensive weapon. Another one is not even conceivable. And now, let me say this going into the last part of this in verse 18. There's a lot of times as Christians, we have all of our armor on. We've got our sword. It's in our, it's in our little sheath here. And all of a sudden, here comes the battle. And so we're reaching for our sword. <laughs> I can't get my sword out. i got all my armor on. I can't get my sword out. What's going on here, you know? You know how you get your sword out? Verse 18. Praying always. In all prayer. Verse 18 tells us that we're to pray in the Spirit. Now, and I, and I understand that could mean very well, and I believe it is, you know, praying in your prayer language. But I also believe that it's praying with the mind of Christ. Praying with his heart and his priorities. What if, if you're praying, if you're fellowshipping, if you're in, in prayer with God daily, that he's equipping you. He's equipping you. You're going to have that rhema word when you're under attack. He's equipping you. But if you don't spend time with him, that sword's going to stay in that sheath because you're not prayed up. Are you, am I making sense? Are you, are you, go like this, please, if you, if you think of it. Right. Anyway, let me get back here. Praying always. If we neglect prayer, we're in trouble because it's the only means by which we can draw strength from God, your relationship with God, strength with God. It's the only mean that we can finally have this victory that won't stay in it and stay secure in it, too. Now, right now, I'm going to finish up here, and I'm going to pray in a bit, minute here, but uh, all these pieces of armor, every one of them here, truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God, and prayer 
are tools that God has given us that are made available to us that we have to appropriate. And if we do, we can be assured of spiritual victories. I'm standing here and telling you a living proof that you can do this. Let me just give you a little warning right here now before I pray. God has a plan for our lives, each and every one of us, especially here now at Impact Church. God's got some wonderful things he's got in store for us here. But you know what? Whenever God has a plan for a church, it's going to be contested. Think about that. We've got to stand ready for this contest. Satan has a plan, too. He doesn't want to see God's purposes for this church come to fruition. And he's going to fight it tooth and nail. So what that tell me? That tells me we've got to be, you know, have our armor on. We've got to be prayed up, have armor, draw close. Yeah, I really believe the closer it gets to the second coming of Jesus Christ, the more the battle's going to intensify. And we've got to choose which side we're going to be on. Yeah. If you're a believer, let me just tell you this, the battle's real. Ain't, this ain't no joke. The battle's real, man. It's intense. You can either be a victor or you can be a casualty. And let me tell you, from my own personal experience, if you are a casualty, you can once again become a victor. That's how good our God is. A God of a second chance. You, the songs you sang, what you spoke, I mean, everything this morning, these guys are preaching my sermon, man. <laughs> <laughs> it was fitting, just like a hand in a glove. It was, it was beautiful. You know? All right, now, I'm going to say a prayer. To, you guys can stand. You know, stand again. I'm gonna, then I'll dismiss you. I've held you here long enough. Now, like I, like, I, like I mentioned in the beginning, there may be some that are offended. There may be some that are ashamed. There may be some that, you know, whatever little confidence I had with them, you might lose it. But I'm going to go on with God. I'm not going to go with the fear of man. I'm going to go on with the fear of God. You know, you know. I understand. Yeah, I really do understand. Now, and, and one one other thing too. The reason I'm sharing this with with the congregation is because I wish Pastor Eric was here. I've already asked him, but I, I wish he was here and I would make it public. I would ask him to please forgive me, and I'm asking the congregation to please forgive me for my for my past sin. But the reason I'm asking you guys to forgive me, I already asked my wife, Pastor David and Pastor Eric, but the reason I'm asking you to forgive me is because I was in leadership when this was going on. And I was prayerless. I should have been praying for you guys. Pastor needed me because he was right in the middle of a battle then. And I was sitting on my laurels. I wasn't praying. That's... Probably even just as bad as a sin as what the other one was. Prayerlessness. A time that I should have been taking up the gap, I wasn't doing it. So please, I ask you just to forgive me. And I'm going to tell you what, I want to covenant with you guys, and I hope you covenant with me. As part of this body of Christ, I am going to pray for you guys. I've been doing it ever since I got free. I'm going to pray for you, and I, I want you guys to pray for me too. You know? We've got to pray for one another. And let me tell you something here, too. I want to bring this up. Now that I'm back here, and I've talked with Dave. Matter of fact, before I gave this, I, I was talking to him about giving this, this. And I said, Pastor Dave, what do you think? Should I do it, or should I talk about something else? He said, Ralph, you go ahead and you do that. 
people got to hear that stuff. You do it. You get out there and you speak that word. You know? And I want to tell you something. I got me another prayer partner, our accountability partner. Anybody know Pastor David List? We're back at it again. So watch out, enemy. Giving you a warning. Yeah. All right. Let's just pray. Let's bow our heads. And we're going to, we're going to say a prayer. All right. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you hold the victory over sin and death, Lord. We thank you, Father, that you came to set the captives free. We thank you for your redemptive work that you've done in our lives. Thank you for the freedom and the hope that you bring to us. We hold your word as a weapon against the enemy's schemes, and we proclaim that he does not have any authority over our lives. For we have been set free. Give us wisdom and discernment to recognize his traps, to stand strong against his work. Fill us fresh and anew with the fire and the power of the Holy Spirit. Today we put on the full armor of God. We put on the belt of truth to protect against lies and deception. We put on the breastplate of righteousness to protect our hearts from the temptations we battle. We put on the gospel of peace on our feet so we're ready to take your light wherever you send us, Lord. We choose to walk in peace in the freedom that your spirit has given us so that we can overcome any anxious thoughts or fears or any, any of the ploys or schemes of the enemy. We take your shield of faith, Lord, yes, that will extinguish all, every one of the fiery darts of the enemy, extinguish all the threats that he hurls at us, we, lead, we believe in your power, Father, to protect us. And we choose to trust in you. We put on that helmet of salvation. Oh, yes, Lord. We cover our mind and thoughts, reminding us that we are children of the day, children of the light, Lord, forgiven, set free, saved by the grace of Christ. We take up the sword of the Spirit. Thank you, Father, for that sword, your very word, the one offensive weapon. We take it up that you've given us for battle, and we use it to demolish these strongholds of the enemy. Your word is alive. Your word is active. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is lethal in our hand against the enemy's ploys, wreaking havoc in the enemy's camp, Lord. We ask that you remind us to pray constantly for all believers and even the unbelievers. Lord, the lost. We ask for your help to stay alert in a dark world. We ask you to make us unyielding to sin. We ask for your help in remembering to put on your full armor each and every day, Lord, for you give us all we need. You equip us with all we need to stand in victory. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we've been unprepared, too busy to care. We're trying to fight or wrestle the enemy on our own power. You're with us, Lord. You're not against us. Thank you that we never fight alone. For you are consistently at work on our behalf, shielding, protecting, strengthening, exposing the deeds of darkness, bringing to light what needs to be known, covering us from the cruel attacks we face even when we're unaware. We love you, Lord. We need you, Lord. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen and amen. And one thing, one last thing before I dismiss you. <coughs> Folks, strap on your armor. Put it on daily. Put it on... God has a, a purpose and a plan for this church. It's going to be contested. Don't worry about it. We read that last chapter. We know who wins. But you've got to be equipped. You've got to be prepared when the contest comes, when the contest comes, you know. This way, if we put on the armor of God, 
we will be able to stand strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And I see nothing but equipped soldiers for the kingdom and the army of God out here. In Jesus' name, amen. You're released.